Good morning. Acts 22 today. Um, before we stand for the reading of the word, just briefly, this is sort of a part two message. And last time we saw Paul at the temple being accused of things that he didn't do. He was arrested by the tribune, was hauled off into the, the fortress there at the, on the temple mount and then asked to address the crowd, the Jewish crowd who was angry with him. And so that's where we are um, in the text as he's about to to give them an address or a defense. Um, so um, but let's before we go to the word, let's pray. Our father, every word of your revelation is perfect. It breathes life into our souls and your testimonies are unshakable and they provide for us a sure foundation for all of life. The wise of this world are, are stripped by your word and the simple are made wise. Your commandments are pure and shining light, shining in the darkest corners so that our dim eyes may see. So, Lord, we thank you that you have shown the light of your word into our hearts, enlightening the eyes of our hearts. Will you help us to stand then as seeing men among those who cannot see? Would you help this church to be a people that consistently shines the light of your word into this community? May we be ones who defend well the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand for the reading of the word. If you're able, Acts 22, we will read 1 through 29 today. The sermon will focus on 1 through 25. This is the Apostle Paul. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense now that I make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. 
And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is God's word. You may be seated. So last week I mentioned I've been reading a book uh, of letters by John Newton, who's the author of the well-known and loved hymn, Amazing Grace. In one of his letters, he has this scenario where what if we were men who could see in a nation of men who were blind, physically blind, what would that look like for us? They may not like the fact that we could see very much. They may persecute us and say, They have no idea what sight vision is at all. And so uh, what would that look like for those who can see? And then in the very moment that perhaps one of these blind men begins to see his his outlook would be changed in an instant. Right. He would know exactly what sight was, which he never knew before. And that's kind of what's going on with Paul is that he is a man with vision, a man who can see among blind men here in Jerusalem. And what he's doing here in this address is he's giving the first of what is uh, five defenses that is at the end of the book of Acts. And so he's essentially standing up as a man who can see among blind men and giving his defense about what is what is it that I see? There's a few big picture things here that are important to keep in mind as we look at this story. The first is that for Paul defending the gospel is bound together 
with with evangelism, with bearing witness. There's not sort of apologetics and defense on one hand and uh, evangelism on the other. They go together. He's defending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants blind men to see via his explanation. The second thing that's helpful to keep in mind is that for Paul, defending the gospel and defending his apostleship go hand in hand. You can't have... uh, Paul's gospel without his commission, his call to bring the gospel. And then the third thing that we have to keep in mind as we go through Acts and and is relevant in this passage is that this is a letter to Theophilus, this letter of Acts. And it really, as Paul's giving a defense, the whole letter is a defense to Theophilus and, and it's a bit of speculation, but scholars think that perhaps uh, Theophilus was a high-ranking official or something like that, and he may have been concerned that this Christianity sect is p- potentially dangerous, dangerous to the Roman Empire, um, may be volatile or violent. And so throughout Acts, we see this theme come up over and over again, that actually it's the opponents to Christianity who are violent, who are angry, who are unreasonable. And so that's what we see here in this passage. Um, so Paul begins his speech here with the words, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. So it is a, a defense, uh, an apologia. Um, it will really be helpful initially to remember uh, what is Paul being accused of if he's defending himself in his gospel? What is he being accused of? So the accusation here is um, that Paul, essentially, he preaches against the historic Jewish faith. In chapter 21, verse 28, we read that the Jews, this is their accusation. He is teaching everyone everywhere against, number one, the people, number two, the law, and number three, this place, the temple. So Paul doesn't like the, the Jewish people, he doesn't like the Jewish law, and he doesn't like the temple. Now, never mind, just cast aside the careful arguments that Paul has been presenting about these topics for the better part of a quarter of a century, um, that the people of God, that everyone who believes is a child of Abraham, or the law, that the law is a, is a, 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 a pedagogos, a, a tutor to lead us to Christ. And that the curse of the law has been borne by Christ. And then at the, the temple, that Paul says that in Christ we have a building from God, a house not made with hand, eternal in the heavens. So it's not as though Paul doesn't love these things or care about these things. He presents careful, nuanced arguments about how they're fulfilled in the new covenant. But this is ignored. The, this accusation that they present about him has no charity, no desire to understand, no willingness to learn. And why is that? Because the issue for them is not understanding what God has said or what God is really doing. The real issue is this nationalistic fervor that's taken hold of the Jews in Jerusalem. It's these preconceived notions about what God is doing, what his plan of redemption is, that they can't see beyond because they're blinded. And it is really at this point in history and at this place, it's a suspicion and even a hatred of the Gentiles. 
Uh, we see a little bit of this confusion even in the disciples at the very beginning of Acts when they asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That's still the driving force. That's still what we're trying to achieve in their mind. Now, ironically, in one sense, yes, that is what Jesus is doing. The children of Abraham will be brought in from far and wide into the, to, to the Israel of God. And Christ will build them into a kingdom, into a nation of priests. But, but that's not what these Jews in Jerusalem have in mind. Their unwillingness to hear is seen here in their false accusation that we saw last week that Paul even brought a Gentile into the temple. He brought Trophimus into the temple, which he, he never did. He only brought, he was only spending time with Trophimus, but he never brought a Jew, a Gentile into the temple. So I think we can glean a warning from the way that Luke contrasts the behavior of the apostolic Christians against uh, the unbelieving people. This is something I've been working on myself lately and far from arriving. Um, But I think that the impetus is actually arrived from examining Paul and the way he does ministry in the book of Acts. And, And what I've been trying to get better at is actually hearing people. Like, because what people say isn't actually often what they're saying. Trying to understand what is it that you're saying and, and going beyond that to saying, why do you feel the way you feel about that? Why are you passionate about that? Why are you frightful about that? That's something I think Paul is very good at and something that these unbelieving Jews give no grace to Paul in return. These accusations arise for them completely from pre- preconceived agendas. This passionate zeal for God that Paul calls elsewhere a zeal without knowledge. The, the eyes of these Jews is covered by the scales of, of blind zeal and their ears are stopped with, with wads of nationalistic fervor. They can't move beyond that. But as Christians, we, we are people who stand as seeing men among blind men. And so we should have zeal according to knowledge. We should have the greatest commitment to the truth, not just in the proclamation of it, but in understanding the truth. Even with those with whom we disagree. Now, Paul, for really the love of his countrymen, although he knows they won't listen, uh, and, and moreover, it's because he's called to be a witness for Christ, he here takes the stand to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. So looking at his defense, um, if the accusation is you preach against the people of God, you preach against the law and the temple, his rebuttal would be actually Christianity represents the proper continuation and expression of all those things that you hold dear. It is the fulfillment of those things. So I think we can summarize the thrust of his defense like this. He's saying, look, I was going along just like you as a good Jew. In fact, possibly a great Jew. When the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob called me, kind of like he called the prophets of old. And he called me to testify to the risen Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, among the Gentile nations. 
He begins this defense kind of by establishing his own credentials, his own Jewish credentials. And by doing so, he, he does a few things. He establishes rapport with his audience. But he also kind of says, hey, none of this was my idea. This whole Gentile thing was not, not my idea until God opened my eyes. And most importantly, he establishes that this way, Christianity, is in fact not something new, but is the fulfillment and the full expression of all that Judaism was meant to be. So he begins this speech here, brothers and fathers. So right away, he addresses them with an address of respect and identity. He still he sees himself as one of them. And it says he addresses them in the Hebrew uh, language, or actually the word is probably more dialect. He, he speaks to them in the Hebrew. Um, and, and again, he's one of them. And he says, I was born in Cilicia, in, in Tarsus, but I was raised here. I was raised right here in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, who Gamaliel is the grandson of the great Hallel, who is uh, one of the greatest rabbis uh, of all <laughs> in Jewish history. He says in verse 3 that he was zealous for God as you all are this day. And we remember from last time this, this zeal for the law is sort of hearkening back to the Maccabean revolt. And really it, it speaks to more than just I love God's law, but it, it actually speaks to a, a, a zealot flavor to his, his uh, zeal that he um, was ready to die for the law of God, for the nation of Israel. He says he was so zealous to that point that he even persecuted Christians to death and put them in prison. And he says there's actually men probably in this crowd right now that could verify they sent letters for me to go and and do this. And so he's saying essentially here, look, I get it. I'm with you. I understand your frustration with Rome, with the Gentiles. I understand the theological constructs that undergird your zeal. I'm with you here. I only ever wanted to promote the faith of the fathers, but the God of our fathers met me. He called me. He changed me. He shook me by the collar. And in verse 7, Paul shares in detail here, or a detail that, that is not in Acts 9, his initial calling, which is the time of day. He says at noon, which I find interesting. I don't know why I always thought this was at nighttime which just maybe kids' books or something with the light shining down. But it's at noon, which is significant because the, the light of Christ outshines the noonday sun. It's almost like the, the Shekinah glory is shining down on Paul. And he cries out, Who are you, Lord? And, and this Lord identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Which is of profound significance because Paul is implying to the crowd that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the risen, ascended Christ. That he's seeing him right here in this event. And Jesus here identifies himself with the people that that Paul is persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? Remember the, the accusation that Paul, he's teaching everyone, everywhere against this people. 
Well, if we wait just one minute here, if this Jesus is the risen, ascended Lord, and if this Jesus identifies himself with the people of the way, well, might that under, change our understanding of who this people is? Paul continues here to identify with his crowd while also trying to show that that Christianity is the natural expression of true zeal for God. In Damascus, Ananias comes to him in verse 12. And Paul is careful how he describes him here. He describes him as a devout man according to the law. Well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. And Paul's description of of what Ananias told him is really very important for the defense of his apostleship and the gospel. He says, the God of our fathers, right away off the bat, this is not something new. This is not a new sect. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appointed you to know his will. I'm just like the prophets of old. You're, You're an agent of revelation. You're somebody who's been appointed to know what God says. And then he says, you're appointed to know his will and to see the righteous one. So to see Christ and to hear a voice from his mouth. Remember, to be an apostle, to receive an apostolic commission requires that they see the risen Christ and receive a direct commission from him to be sent out. That's what the word apostle means, is to be sent by Christ. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. So what he's saying there is is your zeal, your self-righteous law-keeping is not enough. You need to rise. You need to be sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. You need to call out on his name. You need to be united to him by faith. And take upon yourself the name of Jesus, the very name you are persecuting. And in verse 14, when he said, um, when Ananias says, to see the righteous one, there's no mistaking for the Jews what Paul is saying here. Paul is identifying this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, as the King, as the Savior. Just a few scriptures that would have been second nature to the people in this crowd. Jeremiah 23 Five through six, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And another word, Jeremiah 33, 15, in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So he's identifying Jesus as the righteous one, the one who will come, the son of David, who will come and reign and save God's people. And one more, Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is this is all very confusing to this crowd. 
because they have assumptions about about the militaristic nature of the way in which this Messiah King will come and will liberate and save and establish the nation of Israel. And then they're they're how did Jesus fulfill these promises, Paul? We're not tracking here. And in verse 17, he continues to identify himself, his apostleship, his Christian faith, as the proper expe- expression and continuation of historic Judaism. He says, I continued to pray to the same God. I came to the temple and was praying to the God of our fathers. When again he spoke to me, he came to me in a trance and he spoke to me and he essentially says, God knew your hardness of heart and that you would not listen. Which, by the way, (laughs) case in point. He said, they will not accept your testimony about me. And then in verse 15, um, it says that he was going to testify about Jesus. And interestingly here in 17, uh, the same person is identified as the God who spoke to him. So Paul is identifying Jesus as God with this crowd. So with this crowd, I'm surprised they haven't already uh, stoned him to death. Paul himself is still a little bit confused here. In verse 19 uh, and 20, he seeks clarification for himself. He says, well, I, I zealously persecuted Christians. I watched the stoning of Stephen with with uh, gladness. Surely they're going to listen to my testimony. How else would they explain my 180? And wouldn't Jerusalem be the natural place to begin his missionary work? And so he's a little confused and God doesn't really answer his question. He just says, go for I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So Paul is going to be more more of a Jonah than a a Jeremiah or an Isaiah. He's going to go out outside of the covenant community and to the Gentiles. And it's this little piece, this little piece about I'm going to send you to the Gentiles that just throws the crowd over the edge, that sends them into a temper tantrum. They're shouting, they're throwing off their cloaks, probably as, as a sort of mock, um, pre- prepare, preparing ourselves, we're going to throw stones at Paul. They're throwing dirt in the air. Can you imagine in our own day, people getting upset and start throwing dust into the air? Uh, they're, they're, they're upset. They're shouting away with such a fellow from the earth. He does not deserve to be alive. Essentially for them, it's like, like, don't you get it, Paul, that the Gentiles are the problem for the nation of Israel. We're the chosen people of God. We have the law. We have the temple. If this Jesus were the Christ, he would get that, but he doesn't. And if you knew anything, you would understand too. So this is a, a great defense of the gospel. One that results in people throwing dust into the air. What, what lessons can we draw from Paul's defense of the gospel in this story? Just, I have four briefly. Um, the first is that God is sovereign over whose eyes are open. 
and when they're opened. I may be biased as a Christian, but I think Paul's defense and his rationale is pretty convincing. And still, the, the crowd responds the way they responded because the Bible says their foolish hearts are darkened. And only God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, makes preaching effectual for salvation. Only when He decides. For His own purposes, in this season of redemptive history, He chose to leave the Jews in a condition of spiritual stupor. And Paul's the perfect example of God's sovereignty in salvation. Um, it, It was not sort of Paul, Jesus loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. And, and what do you think about kind of coming in and in, into his embrace today? Are you up for that or no? Maybe not. Um, it was like when Paul was completely passive. He was reduced to nothing on the ground by the blinding light of the glory of Christ. And Jesus didn't even ask. He just said, go to Damascus and you'll find out what you're going to do for me. And then when Ananias comes to him, he didn't say, now, when you're ready, maybe it might be time to start thinking about baptism. He says, what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. None of us has a story as extreme as Paul's, but who among us can say honestly, yes, I I opened the eyes of my own heart. My blind eyes saw the beauty of Christ and I decided to follow him. So praise God, praise God today, come before him with thanks that he has opened your eyes and caused you to see Christ. Second lesson we can draw is that a faithful defense does not always win its audience. Can you kind of picture Paul after the crowd erupts like it does? Shoot, I blew it. I shouldn't have brought up the whole Gentile thing. I failed, I failed them, I failed Christ. No, Paul knew exactly what he was doing. And in fact, he knew how they were going to respond because as we saw earlier in the book, the Holy Spirit told him how they were going to respond and yet he stood as a faithful witness anyways. So it's not our job to open eyes and it's not our job to determine results. God's word goes out for its purposes. Sometimes that purpose is salvation. Sometimes that person is, uh, purpose is judgment. We can only be faithful. Third lesson that we can draw is that Christian defenders are reasonable and charitable with the blind. Throughout Acts, we see Paul and the apostles. They use strong language. They use clear language, even language of judgment. But we don't see them engaging in the kind of behavior that their enemies engage in. They don't get violent or worked up. They don't, they don't engage in ad hominem attacks. They're respectful. They're charitable with their enemies. You can just imagine going back to Newton's scenario with the nation of blind men and a few who can see and you're in a room and you're the only man who can see and, and you start to become angry with the blind men. What a How could he have run into that table again? What a fool. Right? We know they're blind and we should have pity on the blindness of the blind. 
And again, considering the broad analysis of Acts and the themes in Acts, this point is quite important, I think, to, to the recipient, to Theophilus, that this sect of Judaism, this offshoot, is not one of the violent ones. It's not a threat, or it's rather a help to society. And the fourth and probably most important lesson that we can draw from this defense is that spiritual vision is apprehension of Christ. When we apprehend Christ, that's when we really see. There are many avenues people try to take for spiritual illumination, but it's only when we're brought to newness of life, when the scales fall from our eyes and we, we kind of blink the blurry haze away and we see Christ standing as the beautiful Messiah, King, and Savior. That we finally know what those people who claimed to see when we were skeptical, when we were blind, what we finally see what seeing really is when we see Christ. In an instant we say, ah, I was blind, but now I see. Praise God. Amen.